What are the different ways to present quantum physics? The science itself is not intuitive and doesn't seem to work very well with relativistic physics. Granted, relativity discusses macro-reality in big time and space, while quantum physics describe very small waves and functions of matter, but you'd think they would work together, wouldn't you? For all that, presenting science as complicated as quantum mechanics and quantum physics necessarily involves using analogies that the listener can relate to to understand and those that capture our interest. Done properly, analogies can teach. Music depends on waves, the shape of sound. Quantum physics depends on waves, the shape of fields and states of energy. There are specific frequencies for certain effects, and so it makes sense to teach how music works as a way of leading in to teaching concepts of quantum physics using analogies. Thank you for downloading and listening to Iconicast, the science and advocacy podcast. In this, our 20th episode, we present Professor Moriarty. No, this is not Sherlock's nemesis. This is a fine, heavy metal guitarist and a physicist from the University of Nottingham, Philip Moriarty. His new book is When the Uncertainty Principle Goes to Eleven, or How to Explain Quantum Physics with Heavy Metal, which is available through the links at iconocast.com. In this wide-ranging interview, we bring the humanities and science together. You're listening to Iconocast with Dr. Greg Layden and me, Mike Hobrick. I think that every year and a half or two years or so, there's a book that does come out that, that makes an attempt to use some kind of normal human communication to explain what is a very difficult concept, I think, to most people, quantum mechanics. And, and I think I read them all. I, I have to say that I think your approach worked better than the other ones. And I, I think part of that has to do with the fact that you get to a certain point where it's really actually difficult to understand. And instead of saying, it's simple. Take these rubber bands that I have in my brain, and you say, "Well, this is the hard part." So here's what we're going to do: it's going to be hard. Oh, I'm I'm really glad you say that because that's and in fact, um, my editor uh, at Ben Bella, somebody called Alexa Stevenson, was absolutely instrumental in that because um, she really she said, "Right, I followed it here, followed it here, followed it here," and then I would. Um, at a, on occasion say well actually no if we if we try to push it further we're going to get into undergraduate maths and she'd say no i want you to try and bring this further and she challenged me to try and explain it in, in non-mathematical language so i'm delighted to hear you you say that greg um because that's exactly what we were trying to, to aim for and, and to not pull punches it's of course at some level you've got to pull punches and the real difficulty with quantum is that you know you can stack analogy upon analogy upon analogy but ultimately, right at the core of quantum mechanics is something called the wave function, which is something that is not, we can't observe it in experiment. It's, it's not an experimental observable, to, to use the technical quantum mechanical language, which means it's purely mathematical. And then you're trying to, you know, have analogies for that. And that makes it diff- difficult. It's, um, I think it's a quote, there's a, a, a colleague of mine, a guy called, or erstwhile colleague of mine, a guy called Peter Coles, uh, astronomer. I think this, the saying comes from him. Uh, or the, the statement comes from him about 
teaching physics being sort of uh, ever decreasing circles of deception. And, you know, that that's the key thing. You never get the perfect analogy. You never get the perfect metaphor. And in some way, every analogy and every metaphor is misleading to some extent. But, yeah, I, I agree in with the book. I, it's it's great that you say that because that's exactly what we're trying for not to pull too many punches. Yeah, that's a, a big interest of mine. I, I used to teach uh, on a staff of a lot of people teaching a behavioral biology course at Harvard, and our the lead guy was Irv Devore, who died just a year and a half ago. But he would start off. He, he of course, he's a, a Harvard professor teaching to all these Harvard students, and he would kind of joke with them by explaining. Using the biblical reference, he'd say he's essentially casting false pearls before real swine. As they would be <laughs> growing up to, to hold their hands on the levers of power, that this is important. But I, I mm-hmm. never, I always try to uh, uh, avoid, uh, this is something I did not take from him. I, I, I prefer to not have the pearls be false and to use, and to, to not tell white lies in the service of a greater truth until you uh, actually never do it. And when you do have to do it, you make it clear that's what you're doing because it turns out that you might get a certain point across, but in the way along the way you've, like it, I think a good analogy in physics to me is using you know water to you, I think you may mention this but using water systems to explain electricity, that mm-hmm. uh, speed and pressure and and how thick the pipe is and all that is good for the beginning of understanding Ohm's law. But pretty soon you've got a radio and the sprinkler and a radio mm-hmm. are really different. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. No, that's, that's exactly. It. And but on the other hand, I think I don't think it's deliberate lying. I think it's it's uh, it's a struggle to try and get those metaphors to connect. And obviously it's physics rather than maths. Um, and that's sometimes not recognized and the sort of again on the more theoretical end that there is a difference between physics and math but um i think the, the the issue is it's when you say talk about lying i i think the majority of communicators are doing their best to put it across but they want to connect with as wide an audience as possible so they will cut corners a little bit but i think most you know, for example, Brian Cox really got it in the neck a few years back when he was talking about the Pauli exclusion principle. And I'm not going to go into the Pauli exclusion principle, but it's absolutely central to the arrangement of the elements and the periodic table. And if we didn't have the Pauli exclusion principle, we wouldn't have the universe we've got. But that's a really it's fundamentally quantum statistics. That's really what the, the Pauli exclusion principle is about. And Brian got a lot of flack from other physicists saying, well, because he did this BBC program, which was like an audience with sort of full of celebrities. And, you know, he's obviously not going to go into the details of Hilbert space and, you know, the Schrodinger equation and second order differential equations, etc. Partial differential equations for for that matter. Um, He's not going to go into that. So he's got to try and find analogies. And a lot of that was couched by the more um, scathing uh, of those who criticize Brian as being, well, he's lying to the public. But he wasn't. He was trying to, to pitch it at the right level. And. It's just sometimes really difficult to do that. And I think for any for any aspect of physics, getting the right analogy is exceptionally difficult, exceptionally difficult. And analogies themselves are tricky. That's another mm. interest of mine. I've written a fair amount about this. An analogy that is going to have an imperfection. And if it doesn't have any imperfections, it is no longer an analogy. Of course. Yeah. That's a great mm-hmm. way of putting it, yeah. It's the real thing. But some ways in which you adjust the description to uh, analogize rather than to simply describe, some each one of those has an audience that it will piss off, a different audience that will piss <laughs> off. And they'll find, you can't say this because that's really not true. And, you know, so yeah. it's, it, that makes it also difficult to do. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, we're, we're well used to that. So, um, 
uh, sort of catalyst or impetus or whatever for the book was this 60 Symbols channel that a number of us in Nottingham do with a guy called Brady Harron. So when you scroll down through the, the YouTube comments, um, that's where every single analogy is picked over. And as you say, there's communities who go, well, you know, this one's this shouldn't say this, shouldn't say that. Shouldn't if you took every single community, you'd end up just being frightened to say anything, right. really, if you took them on board. But you would just be using a mathematical formula to describe something. Well, it's very interesting you say that. So Brady, Brady and I butted heads about this quite a bit. In the early days, oh, it's, it's actually been going nearly 10 years now, 60 symbols. But he's right. He's saying as soon as you bring in maths for an audience that's um, not familiar with the maths and, you know, every physicist immediately wants to reach for the pen and start writing down an equation. The problem is if the audience doesn't know the maths, then, as Brady put it, it's like trying to talk about the beauty of Shakespeare to somebody who's, who doesn't have English as a first language or indeed doesn't understand English. And yet you're quoting chunks of Shakespeare to them and expecting them to grasp it when they don't have the the, the knowledge of the language. And maths is is a language. So, but uh, coming back to the analogy thing, really, in, and indeed, um, coming back to the sort of water and electricity thing. So one thing we do a lot in first year in undergraduate physics courses, and I think this is pretty, you know, global, um, is that you can draw these really nice analogies between electrical systems and mechanical systems. Now, in terms of resistors and capacitors and inductors, and you can draw, you know, in terms of uh, parallels with friction and um, inertia, etc., and in terms of inductance, etc. So, and Feynman spent a lot of time talking about this. And indeed, back in the early days, before we had digital computers, you'd set up analog circuits to model uh, mechanical systems. Now, does that mean resistance is exactly the same as, um, you know, friction? Of course not. But what's interesting is that the maths is exactly the same. The form of the differential equation is exactly the same. And that's where the beauty and the elegance comes from. But again, if if you're speaking to an audience that doesn't have that mathematical background, then it's very difficult to get that beauty and elegance across, I would say. Well, it's also another thing that always intrigued me. I think what was most interesting is to what degree is a certain phenomenon or reality in physics, if something may be best described and perfectly described by math and it might be anything that isn't math is difficult it is not exactly right and to what degree does that mean that the thing you're looking at actually is that math i mean you mentioned the difference oh, between physics and math what is the difference between is is it the case that at some at the quantum level that physics and math are basically the same exact thing and as you get to larger scales it different they diverge what a brilliant question so i would say the phrase here is the map is not the territory and too many physicists, I think, particularly mathematical and theoretical physicists, make that assumption that actually that the math is the underlying reality. Quantum mechanics, for example, um, the issue of quantum mechanics is that currently there's probably a four or 25 different interpretations, 20 to 25 different interpretations of quantum mechanics. Out there. You know, you've got the standard Copenhagen interpretation. That's really the, the, the one that's, you know, taught to undergraduates. But then, you know, there's many worlds. There's sort of quantum Bayesian statistics. There's, uh, you know, wide range of different interpretations. And uh, importantly, experiment and empirical measurements can't distinguish between any of those. So it's a whole range of different interpretations. Now, to say that the maths is the reality when we've got 25 different interpretations that doesn't seem to me to be a particularly helpful way or a helpful mindset to have. I think the maths is 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 a framework for understanding what's 
going on and a framework for modeling what's going on? Is it the actual reality? I'm a dyed in the wool experimentalist, so I'll say no. Um, another issue with that is, you know, do you discover maths or do you invent maths? So there's something right. called the Mandelbrot. Have you heard of the Mandelbrot set? Yeah. Right. So so the Mandelbrot set is is a really good example. Did we invent that or did we discover it? And I would say because it's always been there waiting to be discovered effectively and you can code it in you know, even a code or as poor as I am can code it in a few lines of, of code. I would say it's been waiting there to be discovered rather than invented. But then others would come down firmly on the other side that no, it's 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 it doesn't have its own reality, objective reality. It's something that we've invented. So we could we could bat those particular philo- philosophical issues back and forth, I think, for hours on end. Yesterday, I was at, at the airport in Minneapolis and um, at the Caribou Coffee Stand there. They always have a trivia question. If you get it correct, you get 10 percent off your order. Oh. And the question was this was um, before Mount Everest discovered what was the tallest mountain. So I'm trying to think of what may have been, you know, perhaps the Matterhorn or something like that. And so I guess the Matterhorn being European centric and the person that um, behind the counter, the barista has said, uh, well, no, it was Mount Everest. Yeah. So <laughs> that's just, that's exactly what you were just talking about is that before we discovered it, was it there? And uh, of course it was. Yeah. And that particular, yeah. And that particular example, that, that's a good way of putting it. I guess with the mathematical side, because it's, um, you don't have quite that connection to physical reality. And interesting when the Mandelbrot said that, that, traditionally involves complex numbers and then you've got the square root of minus one which can't exist in the real world but yet this this incredible mathematical landscape you can you can produce um as if out of thin air so oh i'm going around in circles as you can hear and that's largely because i don't think in a an hour-long podcast we're actually going to get to the bottom of these ages old philosophical issues as to well i guess it's um ontology versus epistemology and from a philosopher's perspective um does quantum mechanics tell us about what's objectively out there or does it tell us about our information on what's out there well okay i want to jump right to something then that i was kind of saving to the end but Mm -hmm. you talk about the the value of the arts and humanities in as not being i guess as not being something that's distinctly different than the physical sciences one of the things that actually Mike is well aware of this because we sort of did some pioneering work in the Twin Cities just in communication here where artists and scientists work together to give common presentations to the public about things. We just did something, Mike, the other way with uh, with uh, Lynn Fellman the other day. She's a, an author and an a illustrator and a colleague of ours who's just written a book about uh, genetic modification, mm-hmm. gen- genetic engineering. And there's a conference here of the Genome Writers Association. So these the Genome Writers Guild. So these are writers, but they write in DNA. Okay. Uh, so these are mm-hmm. you know scientists who make. So the idea is to connect something creative like writing to something very sci- very very oh, wow. uh, hardcore science like altering the genetic sequences in organisms. And what you do see is the humanities and arts do can inform people's how they think about anything. Mm-hmm. And so there's mm-hmm. a strong connection. It's between them. I, my own personal experience with this was many years ago, deciding I wanted to try to explain what an artist is doing when they're doing art. <laughs> so I had a, <laughs> a good friend who was an artist and who had thought about a lot of this stuff. And I, I had a, have this long set of interviews with him trying to understand what he was doing. And I realized eventually that if I was to write a, a, a paper 
that described, I could potentially write a paper that described something that he had done. Or he can do this thing he's doing. And the reason why I can't really write this paper, and nor can he, is because what he's doing is done in a completely different medium. Of course. You know, so yeah. I, I can't describe a sculpture that he does better than you can just go look at the damn sculpture. Exactly. And, and you're yeah. not going to walk away with a paragraph about it. You're going to walk away with other things. And yeah. the other thing I realized in talking to him about how he does his work, and of course anyone who does art knows this. This is standard art. I think it's the first thing. I never took art classes. But is artists do not draw things. They draw mm -hmm. light. <laughs> yeah. and, and that's actually an interesting thing because that makes art an exact uh, – that, that puts art one degree – away from a measurement quant from quantum physics yeah yeah so no that's so f first of all there's an awful lot to unpack there and you've you've touched on quite a few of my interests because of course the, the entire theme of the burke obviously is, is coupling together music uh heavy metal which i know some people mightn't think is music but it most definitely is with um with the the the, the physics side but that's something i've been interested in for quite some time so um back almost 10 years ago now was involved with a project called Giants of the Infinitesimal, which I actually also mentioned in the book, where we worked with sculptors and kinetic, uh, particularly kinetic sculptors, to try to take um, concepts from nanoscience and and you know to, to a wider public, but also to get the artists involved from their perspective. Now, what was great about that project is we had uh, a guy who fortunately um, passed away. Um, shortly after the project ended, a uh, really um, talented sculptor artist called Tom Grimsey. Now, he sat in on a number of the scientific meetings associated with that and with the project. And we would just be tossing jargon around back and forth, you know, like molecular orbitals or molecular orbital density or STM, AFM would be thrown, thrown around these terms. And Tom would just stop us every time and say, well, no, tell me exactly what you mean and how this works. And that was incredibly useful for us in terms of just unpacking the terminology and the the, the different conceptual framework for us and explaining it at a, at a different level but the other thing as well recently most recently i've been um had a fun time with um a friend whose son was involved in a video camp video making camp now her son is uh really into physics and on the creative side has been um, sort of the creative writing side has found some aspects of creative writing challenging. Let's put it that way. An awful lot of physics, physics students I find are like that who and we, for example, have um, students who will deliberately avoid uh, modules, courses whereby they have to write. They will deliberately opt for the courses where which are as pure maths as possible because they really don't like the writing side of things. So as part of this video camp, he was expected to come up with a script. And that was a huge amount of fun to think about. Well, how do we take some aspect of science and uh, couch it uh, in terms of creative writing? To be fair, that's what science fiction authors do all the time. So we um, we thought about uh, sort of bosons and fermions and setting up a culture whereby you know, I don't so bosons and fermions are different types of quantum particles so you could map that onto different cultures it's almost like a star trek episode etc but the great thing about that is that you can then uh without wanting to sound too grandiose about this but you can take the sort of quantum aspects and the properties and the parameters and sort of anthropomorphize them so take them in and put them in a much more everyday context and again it comes back to circles of deception and analogies and metaphors but still to take 
to think about how you're going to translate that science to a story in terms of plot development, etc. Um, I, I think that's we don't do that enough. We with the particularly in the UK, um, we have something called A levels, whereby uh, so what happens then is an awful lot of students will, for example, just do three A levels, high school qualifications. So they will do just maths, further maths, and physics, right. <laughs> or maths, physics, and chemistry. And at age 15 or age 16, they either go down, not all, not all, but a fair percentage, either go down the STEM route or the arts and humanities route and never the twain shall meet. And that's really, it's, it's, it's a problem both for STEM and for the arts and humanities, because as you say, Greg, you can get so much more, the, the, the arts and humanities can inform the science and the science can inform the arts and humanities. And uh, yeah, it's, it just frustrates me a lot that, there is this culture whereby there's this deep divide between those two two aspects of how we see the world. And we do that in the U.S. too. I know that people often, there's a big difference between the, the British system and the American system of education, but we actually do the same thing because in high school, there are ways, that you have to take all these subjects. You, can't, you don't get out of any subjects, but there are different levels of, within each subject. Mm -hmm. And students typically take all the high level or AP levels of, of one subject, like uh, basically physical sciences or life sciences or you, or things related to getting a medical degree or something. Uh, and then in college, it's the same. You have to take every topic, but there's a, this is what I used to teach quite often, is the version of biology for the people who are not going to be a biologist. And they're going to sure. be you know, in yeah. humanities or arts. And, and it's, um, you know, so you, you get that. I mean, we, maybe the American students get a little bit more Breath in, and a little bit less. I depth, think they do a little bit less depth. I but, think they do. But there's still yeah. there's still a lot of focus that happens anyway. Sure, but at least they get it. So in in the UK, for example, we don't have the major minor system. For example, so I'll just speak about Nottingham. But Nottingham's um, fairly typical of other UK universities. They do physics. That's that's it. There's no. Um, what I'd really like to see is a little bit of philosophy in there. We do introduce communication skills and transferable skills, and we spend a lot of time trying to get those across. But in terms of them, they have the opportunity to have optional modules outside of the school. So they could conceivably do something in classics or architecture or, or law or whatever. Quite a few don't. Um, and that's because of the, the sort of secondary school, high school system they come up through really, really focuses them. Yeah. Yeah, there's something else, too, I think that since we're complaining about the educational system that I think happens and it happens in the U.S. And I guess I was I've even been part of encouraging this is at the at the Ph.D. level. Now, in many Ph.D. programs in the U.S., you can get your Ph.D. by completing a instead of writing a thesis, you, you complete five or six and get published peer reviewed papers in your specialized yeah. area. And I realize as I've been interacting with younger academics, I see this a lot where uh, uh, right now, for example, we have a big problem where in this in academia, as you know, where open source publishing is a good thing, in my view. Yeah, yeah. But it, Absolutely. it also opened up the door for predatory publishers. Absolutely. And there's a certain yeah. amount of people that as you hear like, oh, there's 40,000 papers that have made up authors or something a year, but there's like yeah. 55 million papers written a year. So, but the point is, absolutely, yeah. there, there's a problem there. But to me, as somebody who was schooled in the old way, I wrote a thesis. I can't believe that a scholar at the PhD level would ever look at a, one of those papers and not know it was a fake paper. Because one of the things you learn, that's uh. to me, that's part of scholarship is learning, 
learning what literature really is and how oh, to geez. evaluate it. And I think if, if students, that, and that's you learn that when you write your thesis because you get your first yeah. chapter sent back to you again. You just you left this out. You didn't include this. This guy's full mm -hmm. of shit. You know how could you include this? And you get that again and again. How is it that? Uh, and I think that if you write five papers on the uh, on, on on what happens when you do a certain technique to study a certain half of a molecule in a muscle tissue, um, you're not going to get the scholarship side of it that easily. Yeah. Uh, Greg, um, you've opened up a huge Pandora's box there. I could spend uh, the next four or five hours just teasing through some of those. So am I allowed to swear a little bit? Yes. Or, or expletives are like, right. So have you come across this wonderful spoof paper called Take Me Off Your Fucking Mailing List? Have you seen that? No. <laughs> right. So those are Oh, yeah. it's, it's amazing. So as a computer scientist who got, as we all do, got it's, um, on some mailing list and you get these invitations to submit a paper to a, a conference over and over again. It doesn't matter how many times you block them, how many times you try to junk mail them. They somehow get through the spam filters. So he got pissed off with this and decided, OK, well, I am going to submit a, con a paper to your conference. And the title was Take Me Off Your Fucking Mailing List. The abstract was Take Me Off Your Fucking Mailing List Repeated. Figure one was like a flow diagram with Take Me Off Your <laughs> Fucking Mailing List. So it was incredible. And that's all is in the paper. And of course, the, the punchline, you know what the punchline is going to be. It was accepted for the conference. So when he submitted it. <laughs> I, I remember that paper now. I think it's actually get me off your waiting list. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so so uh, in terms of the predatory aspects, I agree. Um, have, you come, have you come across something called PubPeer? So it's, uh, it's a website whereby any paper with a DOI, with a, it's a website whereby any paper with a digital object identifier DOI, you can upload and, and prompt discussion, start discussion on those papers. Now, I think that's a great thing. So it's post-public, the pub peer is post-publication peer review. I think that's great because it gets us beyond this point whereby, you know, the idea is once you get your paper past, you know, the two or three referees and the editor and it's published, unfortunately, it's often seen that that's sort of the end of the scientific process when that should be the start. That's really where the discussion should start. And pub peer gets us beyond that and cite other sites like pub peer. Um, so the... The issue, I think, however, is that we are locked into a system whereby when you talk about open access, I agree. And we should in the, in the group, we try to target open access as much as possible. Um, and we should get away from this nonsensical reliance on things like impact factor and H factor. The problem is, Greg and Mike, and I don't know if you get this as well in, in your sort of disciplines, if I go down, if I tell the students and the postdocs in the lab, well, actually, we're not going to try and aim for those journals like Nature and Science and Physical Review Letters and, and Physics or Nano Letters or whatever, that actually what we're going to do is going to publish everything in open access journals. And there's a wonderful open access journal in Nano Science, which is called the Beilstein Journal in Nanotechnology, which is entirely free to publish in and entirely free to read. So in principle, that's where we should publish everything. Mm -hmm. If I do that, however, I may as well go down, I may as well tell the students and postdocs start your career is over right because unless they aim for those um, journals and unless they get published in those journals they're not going to get the positions they're not going to get the academic positions that they, 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 they want to aim for and to me that's a massive catch-22 and it's going to take at least a generation for us to get away from this idea that you judge people not by reading their papers but actually scanning 
a list of their publications and looking for names of the particular journals. And that happens all the time. Right, of the journals themselves, yeah. Yeah. Well, there was a, a guy named uh, Ivan Illick who mm -hmm. uh, wrote this book in the 60s. And uh, he was a sort of a radical. He had this great idea, for example, that in tropical countries, they should grow food, they should grow plants that produce alcohol and use it to run basic tractors that they then use to farm their food and get independent from foreign oil. And that is, of mm -hmm. course, what Brazil has done. Um, yeah, it was mm -hmm. literally. But he suggested that uh, if you could develop computers sufficiently, that there could be a big interactive database so that you could pretty much sit down and find anything that was written on the computer, then all you need for universities is this database with everything that's been written and a lot of coffee houses. <laughs> and of course, yeah, yeah. We, we've got that now. We've got the computer yeah. and the coffee houses. We have—I mean, I don't know about it in Great Britain, but in the United States, there's at least four coffee houses on every corner. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> and we have the—we have the internet. You know, he—he he basically was talking about the internet before it was, or when and maybe mm -hmm. it was just beginning. Or he was really—I think he wrote this in like '66 or '7. So I don't think the internet existed yet, and or any any pre version of it existed yet. You know, that's essentially what you're talking about, and that's essentially what we do at some level. It's actually interesting because that's what people who are not in academia do. Have you read, there's a, there's a fantastic book called The Death of Expertise by a guy called Tom Nichols. It's one of my favorite ever books, certainly my one of my books of the year last year, but uh, certainly one of my favorite ever books. And he makes the point that actually we've got this wealth of knowledge out there that we can tap into um, that, you know, any other epoch in history, we've never had that or any other era in history. And yet what we have is instead of, um, you know, the population becoming ever more enlightened and ever more intelligent and ever more um, full of knowledge, you get this strange mixture of arrogance and ignorance because people think they can Google something, pull out the first thing they see, don't bother reading it. And in fact, I don't know how many articles um, it is that or what percentage of articles are never read beyond the headline. And w in principle, we've got that information, but in practice... It's it, it doesn't get through. We're, we're um, we, we've ended up in a situation where everything has become incredibly polarized. And um, instead of rational, reasoned argument, we end up with these incredible, um, incredibly petty fights online. Um, and when it comes to academia sort of playing into that, I would say we're in a very dangerous place for academia. And Nichols makes this point as well, where expertise is not seen to be something that's useful and beneficial. Expertise is often used as um, as a criticism and is seen to be a disadvantage because you're an expert. You're part of the elite. You're not one of us. And that's incredibly dangerous, despite the fact that in principle, we've got all this information available. Um, something's gone very badly wrong with the sociology. But how we're ever going to roll that back, it's very difficult to say, because when you, 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 you couple that with the, the, the overall tone of any type of interaction or exchange on the Internet and just how quickly it can you know, descend into the mire, uh, it's it's really problematic, and uh, because the mantra is, you know, the the traditional academic mantra is education, education, education. That will solve all our problems. I think that is just so breathtakingly naive. Because there are, you know, a really good example is climate change. You know, in, in terms of how um, acceptance of the uh, the evidence for climate change is received, 
or how the evidence for climate change is received. Is it a question of, you know, school uh, or education levels or any type of other demographic based around salary, etc.? No, the key de- the key um, decider in the US, at least, is do you vote Democrat or do you vote Republican? That's the key to in terms. And that means it's purely ideological. And the idea that you're going to shift an ideological um, uh, ingrained, really entrenched ideological view by tons of evidence, that's just not going to happen. Um, there's a, uh, what's his name, McGraney, that has written this book called you, you Are Not As Smart As You Think You Are, which is in terms of argumentative fallacies. And he points out that, you know, in fact, what happens is that, uh, particularly online, you've got Google and what you'll do is instead of taking on board evidence that counters your view you will search for the community that supports your view and so you'll become even when you're presented with pretty compelling counter evidence you would become more entrenched in your own view often and so you know as an educator that's really scary if i can't if you can't educate people out of this behavior what the heck do we do i'll put a plug in for education though I think that one thing we need to do more of, uh, okay, we are now under uh, reviewing our, our standards, our science standards in Minnesota, and mm-hmm. I'm not too involved this year, but the, several years ago, I was heavily involved in that process, and what I noticed is that we were doing it wrong, and that is, you take, you, for example, in biology, you take, you take five or six biologists, professors of biology at the university, and get their opinions, and they think to themselves, well, what do I want my graduate students to know? When they come in, of course, we're talking about high school standards here. And and so in order mm-hmm. for them to know as, as college graduates, what should they have gotten in college? And they're teaching a college course in it. So then they know what their students who come out of high school, what they don't know. They know when I teach my introduction to biology course, the students come in and they're stupid about this and this and this. I want them to know that in high school. So therefore, I will include that in the standards. So they're really thinking about what does a high school student need to learn that they will remember, which they don't, in college so that they will then learn what they will remember, which they don't, into graduate school in order to become a professor. So they're creating, they're duplicating themselves out of all these high school students, and really only yeah. one in a thousand high school students is ever going to do that. Instead of, what does this student need to know when they become 18 and can vote and go in the voting booth? Precisely. Absolutely. You know, so actually in the UK, unfortunately, that can backfire to a certain extent. That's exactly what happened in the UK a number of years ago, or about 10 years ago, I guess, when they revised the A-level curriculum for physics. And what they said is, well, we don't just want to produce students here who are going to go into a university degree um, and to do a university physics degree. We want exactly as you say, Greg, we want this to be more about a sort of well-informed citizens who have got some understanding of physics. Now, the difficulty there is, is then, well, what's happening is that we're not getting enough students to do physics. Well, one strategy might be, well, let's take some of the maths out and make it less math heavy and therefore make it more accessible. That's exactly what they did. And that has really been to the detriment of um, the detriment of the subject, I was saying, certainly to the detriment of those students who do go on to do physics at university because they get hit by physics in university and go, oh, wow, there's an awful lot of maths in this. Right. Um, so it, you, you, I agree with you, but you do need to, you do need to balance those um, aspects in terms of the broader education versus the sort of, if you want to put it, narrow education, university education. But having said that, you know, forty percent of you know uh, of that demographic are going on to university in the UK. So um, it's 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 difficult um, balancing those two things. But 
you're right, we tend to try to sculpt students in our own image, which is generally and often not the best thing to do. Well, a, a good example I think of how to do this might be, uh, everyone has a has an opinion about what's wrong with education. And they're usually, it's what was wrong when you were in school, you know, 30 mm-hmm. years ago, and how to fix it, which I guarantee you educational experts have already considered. But, of course. Yeah. Um, here's an example. My wife teaches biology in high school. And one of the things that she does in her biology class she gives all the students this thing is called an ascertainer and it's a box with an unknown shape it's got space inside and the space is of an unknown shape so it's a slightly complicated shape like a couple of angles and stuff and there's a ball in there that rolls around and what you need to do is move the ascertainer around and shake it and whatever you need to do listen to it feel how it vibrates when you move it and just draw a map of the inside wow and and this is a process of inference based upon you don't even know what you're supposed to do yet. You have to pick it up and figure out what kind of evidence mm-hmm. can you get. Okay, so and, and sort of this is like this is what science is. You know, this is yeah. you know, we don't know what this is. We got to draw a map of it. So how do you do it, and what do you learn? And I think that that has to be instead of like one exercise in one lab, it should be that kind of thing, like how it works. This should be the norm. Well, it should exactly. be more, at least just more of it anyway. Just more than more than, and, and that requires taking out those. You know, if you could just say. We don't need students to know, like you said, you, you can't take the math out of physics early because that is a shock, and then you lose your math-oriented people maybe. So don't do that. But maybe there is some category of something you could just skip that yeah, people absolutely. can learn later. Do we really, yeah, do we really need the, the, the 15th problem on inclined planes and friction? I agree entirely. And what you're talking about is sort of – so actually Brady and I did a video about this um, – uh, oh, I don't know, like four or five months ago, back in May, I think, something like that, um, which is this idea of um, the scientific method. And the way I put it in that video is capital T, capital S, capital M, which is a bit of a misnomer because, you know, you take I'm in your community, in your biology community, you will do things very differently to what will happen in condensed matter physics. And indeed, within the discipline of physics, how an astronomer or how a particle physicist does science will differ from how, a, again, a condensed matter or a nanoscientist, uh, condensed matter physicist or nanoscientist will do science. There is this idea, um, particularly among high school students, that science is also objective. And really what you do is you do the experiment, you come up with your hypothesis, you do your experiment and you prove uh, uh, one way or the other whether your hypothesis is correct. So there's a guy called Carlo Rivelli wrote a wonderful book it was written a number of, of wonderful pop popular physics books but there's um a great article um great uh, interview with him in i think the edge which has got the title of science is not about certainty and he makes the point and it's a very good one um that you know the it's it's a you know it's an oxymoron in many ways to say or some uh, just improper to say that science proves anything really because it's as you say. It's a process of in, uh, inference and induction, and it's not a question of deductive mathematical proof and, and drawing a line under this. And this is saying exactly where it is. And moreover, in terms of that box idea, it sounds to me absolutely fascinating, and it's uh, be really neat to try and get that into more um, undergraduate courses here because it would be really good to compare two students or different groups of students, and in terms of what they draw in terms of the internal mapping of that, of, that, of that box and to what extent it varies from group to group and from person to person because the sociology of science is so incredibly important and 
tying it back to what we were discussing earlier in terms of peer review, you know, peer review is is absolutely um, sociologically driven it, to the extent whereby often getting a grant funded depends on the panel member who's speaking to your grant. You know, when it goes be, it goes in front of a peer review panel, um, are they are they introverted? Are they extroverted? Do they think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread? All those types of things make a big difference in terms of the progress of science. So I've not come across that mapping the internal geometry idea. I think that's a wonderful idea. Um, I'll send you an email about that later on because I'm very keen to find out more about that. So coming back to a little bit more to within your the subject of your excellent book, I, I don't remember what started the conversation, but some time ago there was a conversation I had. I, I tend to be in email touch with a group of physicists and others who are in climate science areas. Oh, okay. <laughs> and so a, a subject came up and I wanted to know when an electron, so I mean when a photon, you know, from the sun mm-hmm. is is going to like, they're going to it's going to hit an it's going to be absorbed by an electron at some mm-hmm. point on the earth, let's say, and it's going to either it, it, it it's either going to heat up the electron, heat up the atom, mm-hmm. the molecule, or it's going to reflect off. Mm-hmm. There's a couple other things it can do, but that's a minor percentage. Yeah. Um, yeah. When it reflects off, is it mm-hmm. the same photon or is it a different photon? And it turns out that the group of physicists that I asked had a range of opinions, and the majority opinion was we don't really care. <laughs> it doesn't wow. matter because a long time ago we figured out that we're not really sure, and it's we don't we don't need to know that to understand how climate science works. In other words, they were they weren't being dismissive of it. They were just saying it acts just like it bounces off, but it might not be the same photon. Absolutely, yeah. So I would say it's not quite the same photon. It's a question of a scattering problem. Um, so I, I would, I don't know if that was the majority opinion, but I would say it's not the same photon. Um, so because it's a question, then you get into the whole. Uh, it depends on which particular process is 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 going on. As you say, there's absorption where the photon is effectively swallowed up. And then you could have a, you know, you excite the molecule and the molecule de-excites, releases a photon. That's clearly not the same photon. But even at the level of, as you say, scattering, um, reflection, um, that in that case, sense, you really have to bring into the idea of these virtual excitations, etc. And it gets very, very complicated. And indeed, Feynman, who's usually an incredibly good communicator of science and, you know, every physicist is contractually obliged, just written into our, you know, um, contracts that we have to mention Feynman every time we do anything involved with public engagement, including podcasts. But even he, in terms of, for example, you know, we did again for sixty symbols a long time ago. We 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 tried to address this question of why is glass transparent? You know, at one level, so at one level, it's relatively straightforward. Glass is transparent because if you have photons um, that don't have sufficient energy to excite the electrons within the the glass. Um, then they will they will make it through the the the, the substance and um, won't be absorbed, won't be eaten up. Now that's well and good, and that allows you to to express why um, uh, photons uh, can pass through and why you can see through it. But obviously there has to be some interaction because if there wasn't some interaction, we wouldn't have refraction. So clearly the photons are interacting with the lattice, and then it becomes with the glass. Then it becomes really interesting as to what the heck is going on. And Feynman spends a bit of time in one of his lectures of physics uh, talking about this. And, you know, it's it's confusing and it's um, tricky because it's a question of, you know, that that for for one thing, do you use a wave picture or do you use a particle picture? Because you can explain it from both angles and then you're back into the the 
perennial quandary with quantum mechanics in terms of uh, we can see how this works and perhaps um, from a wave-like perspective, it's, it makes sense. But then when we think of this in terms of individual photons, it becomes a lot more complicated and a lot more tricky. And um, yeah, so uh, that's a really interesting question that you, you asked of that group. And I must admit, I would sort of be uh, uh, of the same opinion that in many cases, it just doesn't matter. But that to me then seems a bit along the lines of the, the classic shut up and calculate approach to quantum mechanics. And we've done an awful lot of that. And I can understand why as somebody who teaches very basic quantum mechanics in first year, I can understand why we say that and why it's, it's again, attributed to Feynman. But actually, that shut up and calculate is, is most likely comes from a guy called Merman. Um, uh, so don't believe everything you find on the web. Um, so uh, the the difficulty is, is if we go down, if we start to get into the philosophical aspects as to what the heck this actually means, students would just, you know, they'd go around in circles it would whether we they get the 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 mathematical tools they need to actually do the subject i don't think they would so we focus very much on well don't worry too much about what this actually all means here's the math the math works go ahead and do it the problem is that type of thinking then gets ingrained and we we miss the bigger questions right i i is this somehow does this somehow parallel to or very close? I mean, this particular cul-de-sac might not have anything really interesting in it, but what does this relate to how LED lights work? To come back to, okay, so with glass or any any solid, so with um, glass is obviously an insulator, which means that it's got, to, to get electricity through it and get electrons flow through it, you have to provide a lot of energy so they get across a, a, a big gap in the energy levels. For things like semiconductors, then um, that that energy gap and silicon's a really great example. Of course, that energy gap between the filled electron levels and the empty electron levels is smaller, which means that what you can do is via electrons or indeed by putting photons in, you can excite the electrons from the filled uh, orbitals up until the, the empty orbitals. When they relax down, then you get a photon out. And that's basically how LEDs work. It's that uh, the mani manipulation of the what's called the band gap. So um, it's it's the it's the energy difference between the filled electron orbitals and the empty electron orbitals. Now we could spend the next I can tease back through and go all the way back to you know hydrogen atom and building up how where those states come from. But that might be the basis of another hour. <laughs> I don't know if you really want that. Um, it's a difficult one to explain. Just. Um, sort of a sound bite, but it's all to do with, um, in any solid, you have filled electron levels, you have empty electron levels. Um, like in an atom, you obviously have these discrete orbitals um, and the electrons, we have this little model of the solar system, which again, in terms of circles of deception, is definitely not how things work, but it's a, it's a good mental model to have in many cases, whereby you, know, you can excite an electron from one orbital to another. In a solid, we have the same, except instead of much the same, except instead of having those very discrete um, energy levels, which is just one energy level or no other, we have bands of energy levels, and then you can get transitions from one band to another. So... Um could you uh, could you please um, explain a little bit about um, where you got the idea for bringing music and in specific uh, genre music, the metal type of music, to explain concepts of quantum physics? Absolutely. 
Thank you for that, that question, Mike. But yeah, that's, that's good. Um, so I've been teaching physics now for been lecturing for 21 years, actually. And what always um, fills my heart with great joy is the start of every new year, academic year, is to see the students file in. And you'll see a fair proportion of Metallica, Slayer, Led Zeppelin, Thin Lizzy, Black Sabbath t-shirts coming in. I think if you had a Venn diagram of physicists and metal fans, the overlap in that Venn diagram would be quite large. So there was clearly a, a resonance there um, in terms of metal music and those interested in physics. But m broader than that, um, you know, metal is music. What's music? Well, it's all about sound waves. It's all about um, producing waves and how those waves interact and interfere and the various different resonances you can have. But on this, by the same token, what's quantum mechanics? Well, fundamentally, quantum mechanics is a theory of waves. Now, we don't quite know or don't, uh, don't quite yet have nailed down exactly what those waves are all about. But certainly what we do know is that with quantum, what's exceptionally important to understand how matter behaves is you have to imbue matter with wave-like characteristics. It doesn't mean it is a wave, but you have to accept that it's got wave-like characteristics. So the links between quantum a theory of waves and music, which is all about sound waves, are pretty um, close. Metal takes it to the next level, uh, if you will. It dials the, 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 the volume all the way up to 11 and beyond because um, in terms of how you play guitar, how you drum, the, even the crowd dynamics are very interesting in metal. There are so many parallels with aspects of quantum physics that um, it would be a shame not to bring them out. So that's what the book is all about. And why do you want everything louder than everything else? <laughs> that I think, actually I was listening, wow. I was listening to um, Deep Purple's Made in Japan, which is, I think where that comes from. Um, everything louder, everything one louder than everything else, Gillen, Gillen says, oh my, that's that's an interesting resonance. Um, oh, because, oh, there's nothing like a metal gig. So uh, just being immersed in the music, being embedded in the music um, is fantastic. But that sense of dynamics, that sense of um, oh histrionics, you again in terms of the parallels with quantum, the uncertainty principle really you can describe because the uncertainty principle is too often seen to be this purely quantum mechanical thing when in fact it's it's it just stems from the physics and the maths of waves. It's too often it's um, confused with what's called the observer effect. Now when we do make a measurement in quantum mechanics, yes, we disturb the system. Uh, to use the, the traditional terminology, we say we collapse the wave function. But that's very distinct from the uncertainty principle. The uncertainty principle just tells us that if we've got a wave that's um, not constrained in time, lasts for a very, very long time, you know, if you whistle for 30 or 40 seconds and put that on a spectrum analyzer or just look at the sample and look at the frequencies that make it up, you'll find that you've got a single well-defined frequency. If, however, you, you know, you just do have a very short whistle, or indeed you clap your hands, something that's very time limited, you'll find when you do the maths, and the maths are, you know, I'm not saying that they're, they're, they're the easiest, but they're not certainly the trickiest. The maths will tell you that something that's got, that lasts only for a short duration is associated with the wide, uh, broad band of frequencies. So its bandwidth is much larger. And that's something you can demonstrate with, uh, you know, a guitar, and it's something that metal guitarists do all the time because what you do with, with metal in particular, rock music certainly, but metal in particular, is that you um, you damp the strings on the guitar. Use the palm of your hand to damp the strings of the guitar to get things to chug 
to sound crunchy. And so there's a natural, very natural analogy, um, not even a forced analogy, a very natural analogy there um, between the, how metal guitars play their riffs and the uncertainty principle. But to find out all the detail, you're going to have to buy the book. (laughs) I don't remember if it was something you said in your book or something I looked up while I was reading your book about Mm -hmm. Schoeninger's cat. Yeah. And just how I hadn't realized that Schoeninger's cat analogy was basically meant to be a sarcastic comment. Precisely. It's a reductio ad absurdum. So Schrodinger was very upset because um, so the, the, the standard Copenhagen interpretation, which is the, the, the one that is still taught to students, is that really until you make a measurement, all, all bets are off. And so Einstein, this really irritated Einstein. And there's a very um, famous um, exasperated question he asked. I can't remember of whom. But um, surely you don't believe that the moon isn't there until you look in that, you know, if you're not looking at it. And the thing with Schrodinger as a cat is, is, is that um, Schrodinger was trying to show, look, if this is, you know, if, if we take the, the natural conclusion of what you're saying, this is the nonsense we end up with. So I don't know for those for those listeners who might not be familiar with Schrodinger's cat. You've got a box, you've got a cat in it, you've also got a radioactive element which is set up so that when it decays, and it will decay randomly, it breaks a vial of poison and that kills a cat. Now, traditionally quantum mechanics would say until you look in that box, then um, you don't know the state of the cat. No, it's even be, it's more, let me be careful here. The traditional quantum mechanical outlook on this isn't that before you look in that box, the state is the cat is in a superposition of states. It's both alive and dead. So it's in this zombie state. And when you open the box, you collapse the wave function and it's either alive or dead. Now, the way out of that, it's and it's taken many years to, to, to try and tease through this paradox, but at least with conventional, with, with current, at least with current thinking, the, the way out of that is a process called decoherence, whereby once um, a quantum system interacts with its environment, all the quantum waves get scattered. You know, atoms are vibrating continuously around us. We're interacting with everything around us. The way I usually couch it when I do sort of pint of science talks or um, skeptics in the pub talks is that long before that box has been opened, that cat has been observed gazillions of times because it's interacting with its environment. And that for, for that interaction leads to, you know, a collapse of the wave function. Well, you're absolutely right. Schrodinger put it up as a reductio ad, ad absurdum. The, the other thing that, that's a, in popular uh, discussion, we talked before about the, 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 the demise of expertise. And I don't, know if, I don't know if you and I would agree on this, because I think that we're talking back into the area of analogy uh, and so on, is just the use of the word quantum. Now, to me, quantum means two things that are different. I mean, two distinctly different things. One is its size. So there's a quantum sort of size. And the other is the distinction of space or time. So you can't be anywhere along the spectrum. You're either in point A or point B. And to me, either one of those, as a writer, I see either one of those as as a decent analogy. So when that guy who later played in the Star Trek movies, you know, in that TV show, Quantum Leap, ends up in a different place in time, Mm-hmm. that's a legitimate quantum leap to me because it's not small, but it's distinct. 
Yeah, no, that, that that's fair enough. And I, I spend a little bit of time in the book discussing this in terms of how, how it's sometimes abused. But I can take your point. You're absolutely right. The, the key, the quantum comes from quantization. And again, that's not um, a little bit of a detour, but it's an important detour. Uh, the, 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 the quantization is, 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 again, apparent in the, in the world around us. Take a guitar. That guitar string will only vibrate at certain preferred frequencies. It doesn't vibrate at any frequency it likes, because if it did, it would sound bloody awful. It would just sound like a noise. So it's got the reason it sounds melodic, um, even for Slayer sometimes, is that it's um, it's got certain frequencies that it can vibrate at. Therefore, its frequency is quantized. It can only come, as you say, Greg, at certain specific values, not any old value. And at the quantum level, that's what's what's happening all the time is that um, an atom can only vibrate at certain particular frequencies. An electron can only have certain particular energy levels um, or particular energies. And you're right. In that sense, quantum is... Um, uh, yeah, all about you can talk about quantum leaps as being very distinct, b- being leaps between very distinctly different um, uh, properties or whatever, or very dis- distinctly different um, places in space or time. I agree entirely. The problem is, and I spend quite a bit of time in the book bemoaning the sort of rise of quantum woo from people like Deepak Chopra, is that when you then couple that. I think what's really important to get across is that these quant- what's happening at the quantum level really is on such my- tiny, 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 beyond tiny scales in terms of energy that in terms of the, the, you know, the world around us, that quantum stuff is just washed out entirely. We live in a, it's not um, fashionable to say this, but we live in a world of classical, not quantum physics. When you walk through a doorway or I walk through a doorway, we don't diffract. We don't see that wave-like characteristic, and that's because we're just plainly too damn big, and all the quantumness is washed out. Now, my my concerns and qualms, and I don't want to get too precious about this, my concerns and qualms, particularly with people like Chopra and others like him, is that they take the quantum idea and the quantum leap idea and just take that completely out of context and assume that it applies to the big bad world around us. And that's where I, my teeth, I start to, you know, um, grind my teeth just a little bit. As an analogy, the misuse of quantum that does, that is completely wrong, is big. It's a quantum leap, meaning a very large yeah, leap. Yeah. That's simply wrong. The size, it's either a small thing or a distinct thing or both and not, it, it can't be a large change. That's it, because once we got, once we scale up large, you know, to objects that are not even, uh, you know, human sized once we get to relatively large molecules and viruses and and. Uh, etc we're not, we're washing out the quantum now you can do heroic experiments where you isolate those large objects from their environment and there really have been heroic experiments along these lines um and then you can see the quantum properties but you really have to work hard to decouple them from the environment because as soon as they're you know as soon as they're interacting with gas molecules or interacting in a solid that you know the 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 quantumness if you want to put it like that leaks out and that's why that's why we have this transition to the world you know, to losing the wave-like nature um, that's right at the, 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 the nanoscopic level, and it's why it's not in the, in the world around us. In order to actually understand how a lot of our technology works, back in the old days, you had to know about steam, you know, <laughs> and then later you had to know about some basic, like, inductance. That's how radios work. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and now you have to know about quantum physics in order to know how your LED lights work and your, your, your uh, 
Android phone screen and things like that. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, that's a quantum yeah. leap, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I, I, yeah, it's. Uh, we could spend again. We could spend another couple of hours discussing this in terms of the the uh, the relationship between sort of basic scientific knowledge and applying that knowledge. Because certainly, when it comes, you mentioned steam. When it comes to thermodynamics, now it, the the applications came before the understanding. Now, that's something that scientists don't like to admit too often because they, they, they'll claim that, well, we need funding to do this because we need to look at this basic scientific principles before we can develop the applications. With thermodynamics and with a number of other uh, aspects of technology, it's entirely the other way around, that the, through sort of trial and error, these engines were developed. And then in terms of trying to improve them, the scientific principles came in. But that could be, again, the subject of an entirely other podcast. That's an interesting a, point. So you're saying that with quantum stuff, the understanding came before the technology. Well, it's interesting to what extent do we need a full, deep understanding? You know, if we see a particular effect and then you can work at a very phenomenological level, you know, if I change this or I modify the materials properties, I get this particular effect out. Do we really, and I'm, you know, certain this is I'm just throwing that out there. I'm not saying that this is is the case for each and every quantum technology that's been developed or any technology based on quantum. But I can certainly see why you don't need a deep understanding really to drive a particular technology forward. And in particular, getting that technology out of the lab is a very different um, set of talents than required than actually try and understand the underlying physics and you know there's the it's the difference between applied and basic science i guess so, yeah. so, so it's always both uh, uh, people's uh, history of uh, people's history of science by clifford connor that develops that uh, really well it's a really interesting book but it does talk about how guilds and crafts people over the centuries going back um to polynesian sailors developed a lot of the concepts that we have they just didn't formalize it mm -hmm. in the british society uh, form until it, it became an academic structure to that we call science that that this was something that was important where the laws were formulated on technology that had already been used for centuries exactly <clears throat> yeah this is something i've been thinking about lately too is in uh for example in the the the, the in medical science where you're basically trying to deal with uh illness uh, and so you have pathogens. We had some vaccines prior to the under, prior to the existence of germ theory. And mm -hmm. uh, over time, medical science has addressed things that it had no business understanding how it was how it was what was happening. Eventually, we started to understand that uh, it's a lot of what happens in physiology has to do with the molecules of different shapes interacting because of their shape. And sure. so we now understand that now, but we don't know what any of the shapes are for many systems, but we know for some of them. So I guess what I'm saying is you should, if we had a perfect understanding of, of the, at the molecular level of physiological systems, we could produce pharmaceuticals from a theoretical perspective, de novo, for even diseases that don't exist yet. But instead, but we can't do that. But there would still be the engineering part. You still at the end have, oh, it doesn't quite work. We've got to fiddle with it, but you could do it. But we, we can't do that now. And at some point in any science, you could look back and say, boy, they were stupid. I have, I have a, a physics book that dates to the, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a natural, it's a book about the natural world, but it's mostly physics. And it's from the early 19th century. And 
it it's it says for example why it's always it's question and answer question and answer okay everything is a question and answer and the question is why do the leaves move to the edge of the pond and the answer is because there is a force that moves leaves to the edges of ponds <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. It's like, you know, you can answer any question in physics by because the system wants to get to its lowest energy state. Any, pretty well, any question in physics can write. Of course, the devil is always in the details. So right, yeah. like water surface yeah. tension and breezes. And, exactly, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. And so I, I think that that's, um, I, I, I guess I see quantum understanding of the world at the quantum physics and particle physics level as being way ahead of practical application in the, historically. Uh, yeah, so in terms of development of the transistor, for example, and and Bell Labs' development of that transistor, to what extent was that directly informed, and were they did they really need the most recent um, developments and the most recent papers in quantum mechanics, or was it much more of an engineering problem and a material science problem? Uh, you know, those are those are very much moot points. Yeah, I, uh, we're, we're, Bell Labs used to have an ad for itself. I think it was Bell Labs, or it might have been Lucent after you know the post Bell Labs thing. Yeah, but yeah. It, it had a picture of you know a, a person in a lab doing something, and then it's time to go. So they, they walk out of the lab, and there's this liquid with a spoon in it or something, or you know stirring device, and they come back, and it's become solid and it's clear, and like that was the invention of Lucite. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, and that's mm-hmm. like that's the and so we're great, we're great scientists because we invented this great thing by not cleaning up one day after completely by accident, yeah. as opposed to, yeah. you know, it, 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 I guess the myth of science or the mythology of discovery and all that is more important as a selling point than. Yeah. But it's interesting and tying it back to what was something we said earlier in terms of the scientific method, etc. you know, so often it is that type of serendipity rather than here's our hypothesis. What do we do? I, I don't have a lot of time for this sort of, the Popper is the the Karl Popper idea of falsifiability. Um, it's in principle, it's an absolutely fine principle, but not very many scientists I know set out to. Well, I've got my hypothesis. How am I going to disprove it? That's not how we work. And serendipity along the lines of, as you say, with Lucent, that's just you know riven into the fabric of physics time and time again. So and and science time and again. So as Asimov uh, had written one time, most scientific discoveries are not accompanied by a eureka moment, but more of a, wow, that's odd. Yeah, precisely. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that's how in the, in the field, meaning on the Internet, you can identify people who are science cheerleaders, but not scientists because they mention the scientific method now and then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, if, if you look at um, if you look at. Uh, textbooks, high school textbooks, they always have the scientific method near the beginning. But if it's a physical science textbook, it will have a different scientific method than a biological science textbook. That's exactly it. People should absolutely, obviously, read your book, and we'll have a link to it. And I really Thank do you. think it's one. Of, it's, it's the most current way of explaining all this. And also, I think, of the books that are out there, the best one that I've seen. But also, go to 60 Symbols on YouTube. because uh, Thank you. It just browse through that. It's great. It's sort of like I don't know. It's 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 just an excellent. Every single YouTube video on that is engaging and interesting and informative. And it's a great resource that people should use. But definitely get the book and look at the book and read the book. Thank you, Greg. And also uh, look at the links that you have, and you can see Striper's pants in color. To get that. <laughs> and and yeah. also, <laughs> you do not have to be a metal fan to enjoy this book. By the way. On the 60 Symbols thing, I've got to stress, at least for me, I can't speak for my colleagues, but for me, Brady Harron, the guy behind the camera, 
is absolutely crucial. If it was just up to academics to make those videos, they wouldn't have anywhere like the the, the sort of view counts they have. Um, Brady is um, he's not a scientist. He started well. He's a, he's a journalist and then a video journalist. He worked with the BBC for for quite a while. Um, oh, and then sorry, he worked with the BBC for quite a while and then um, became independent about ten years ago. But it's his. It's his vision. It's his um, direction, almost that is is so crucial to those those videos. So yeah, but thank you for the the, the adverts. That's wonderful. Okay, well, thank you for coming on the podcast, and I think we've learned a lot. And even though it doesn't seem like we were talking about the book all the time, we actually were because this is a book that addresses to a large extent the way of thinking about thinking. I'd, I'd like to think so. <laughs> it's, it's philosophy, and I don't mean that in a cynical way. I mean that in a good way. <laughs> good, good, yeah. Wonderful. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Mike. It's been uh, a massive pleasure to do this. We have fairly wide ranging conversation. For me, it was uh, certainly a very interesting conversation. And thanks for the plugs for the book. That's really, really kind of you. Thank you. Thank you again for downloading and listening to and sharing this podcast, Iconocast. Be sure to watch for a flurry of new shows, including one with Joe Rahm and another with Anastasia Bodner. Visit the website to purchase our guest books at iconocast.com.